Welcome to Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tiamanini. Here on Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. On today's episode, I spoke with New York Post theater columnist and New York Times best-selling author, Michael Riedel. For many, Riedel is the snarky, sharp-tongued gossip columnist who has skewered Broadway for decades. However, as he did in his first book about the American theater, Razzle Dazzle, in his new book, Singular Sensation, available on Tuesday, November 10th, Riedel weaves together over 150 interviews to chronicle the people, money, and power that created the blockbuster shows of the 1990s and the early 2000s. In our conversation, Riedel and I talked about Sunset Boulevard, The Producers, Ragtime, and more. We discussed the very different voice that he writes within his books as opposed to his columns, and what lessons we can learn from Broadway's response to 9-11 that might be applicable to the industry's recovery from the coronavirus. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Riedel. You added this forward at the beginning of the book, talking about where the state of Broadway was with the coronavirus, and it was much different than I think uh, what you expected the world to be when you were writing uh, this book. And it it felt so perfect that that was one of the bookends of the book. And then the epilogue, you kind of uh, opened the epilogue talking about 9-11. And while those two things are very different for a lot of reasons, they do feel like these major events that have a lot of parallels. As you were writing the foreword and then as this book has started to make its way out into the world, what did you what do you feel about these two devastating events, not only on Broadway, but on New York and on the the country and the world at large? What kind of parallels do you see between them and how they affect, you know, the world of theater uh, as we try to overcome coronavirus and look forward to a day when whenever that might be, things actually do get back to normal and people get back on stage? Let me start with what I think is the is the um, the fundamental difference, and it's a it's a sad one, and it was brought to my attention by Jed Bernstein, who uh, was the former head of the Broadway League. You know, after nine eleven, and I lived through it. I mean, I saw the towers come down from um, from my apartment here. I lived down in the West Village, and I used to have a straight shot view of the Twin Towers, so I watched that whole horror unfold. And uh, we really thought back then that this was the existential crisis uh, for Broadway. I mean, I remember talking to Jerry Schoenfeld, then running the Schubert's, and Jerry said, Michael, I don't know what we're going to do because Times Square was on the list of, uh, you know, the next target on mm-hmm. Giuliani's terrorist uh, list of, of New York City targets. And through a remarkable, remarkable push by Giuliani and the theater community, they were able to reopen the theater, the theaters. On Thursday, two days after an attack that we just thought could possibly upend New York. Um, but there was a feeling back then that you wanted to be together. You People wanted to come together. I mean, I remember vividly that night uh, just meeting some friends and walking around uh, Washington Square Park. And that's when, you know, people were putting pictures of loved ones. Have you seen my husband? Have you seen my daughter? Have you seen my son? People just had to come out. They had to, They had to be together. The problem with the pandemic is that you may want to be together, but you can't be together because that's how it spreads. Right. And you could not have, if you wanted to bring down Broadway, you could not have come up with a better evil scenario than the pandemic. Because mm-hmm. first of all, you have a whole bunch of actors who are on stage together um, singing, which is a way you spread the virus, uh, enunciating, shouting if the play's dramatic, another way you spread the virus, up close if it's a romance, another way you spread the virus. And then down below in the orchestra pit, you have a bunch of musicians crammed in a tiny space, 
blowing on their uh, instruments, which is another way to spread the virus. And then you have these old buildings here on Broadway, and um, they seat 1,500 people, and we know they, they've crammed so many seats in there that it's a pretty crowded fit, <laughs> even yeah. in the best of times. And so, you know, everything, everything has conspired to really knock Broadway out for a long time. Um, and as I say, with September 11th, I, I mean, I talked to Matthew Broderick uh, for this book, and Matthew was in the producers at the time with Nathan Lane. And I asked Matthew, what was it like, you know, the day that they said, hey, we guys want you to come up on Thursday to do the show. And Matthew was he, he was like, he, it was kind of scary. He said, you know, I, I rode my bike up uh, and you didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, you're in Times Square. Was there going to be a bomb, terrorists taking over a theater? You just you didn't know. And he said it was really kind of frightening to go through checkpoints and militia and the military, checking your ID to make sure that, you know, you were legitimately an actor. So they would give you a pass to go up to Times Square. He said it was frightening. He said, but, you know, once you got into the theater and you were with everybody, you began to think, OK, we can we can hold together. We can do this. We can we can lift ourselves up and lift up this business and, and just give some hope to New York. And of course, I was there that night, uh, Thursday, September 13th, mm-hmm. watching the producers with Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, um, Bancroft from the back of the um, theater. And at the end, when Matthew and Nathan led the theater was maybe half full, uh, but when they led. A thousand people singing God Bless America at the curtain call through tears. It was one of the most moving experiences of my life. And uh, we really can't be together right now to sing, uh, to sing God Bless America. Yeah. So, so there's a big difference. There's a big difference there. Now, I do believe, I have to believe that, you know, Broadway's pretty good at comebacks. It survived the Great Depression, uh, which uh, could have been a devastating blow to this business. It managed to survive television and the movies and still go on. It, <laughs> yeah. it survived. I mean, we you know we kind of laugh about this stuff now, but you can imagine what uh, New York City was like. The crash of 1929, you know, all the money to be put into a show was gone. People who would be the um, uh, the audience for Broadway, they suddenly found themselves completely on on Skid Row and living in Hoovervilles as they sing about them in Annie. So that was an existential threat to the theater. But thank God you had Lee Schubert and J.J. Schubert, the Schubert brothers, who through a series of kind of interesting financial maneuverings that I detailed in my first book, Razzle Dazzle, they were able to kind of sort of put their theaters up for sale, but also then buy them back themselves. So they kept them going and, and kept Broadway going. Uh, the other big crisis, of course, was the fiscal crisis in New York in the 1960s and 70s when the city was going bankrupt and Times Square was sleazy and dangerous. And, you know, as Jerry Schoenfeld told me, he said, he said, look, Michael, if your neighborhood is falling apart, your business is not long for this world. And our mm-hmm. neighborhood was falling apart. We had people who were afraid to come to Times Square. How do you sell people a ticket to a Broadway show if they're afraid to come to Times Square? But again, you know, you, you put on good shows like Equus and A Chorus Line and Annie uh, shows that people thought, OK, well, we'll brave this kind of scary world because we do want to see live theater, great live theater. And, you know, Broadway was able over time with the help of Disney to begin to think, okay, we can fix our neighborhood. We are the anchor of this neighborhood. So we have to be involved with the city, with the mayors to try to improve uh, Times Square. And it was it was not easy. I mean, it took it took 20, 25 years to really get Times Square into what it looked like before this pandemic. Um, So but somehow Broadway survived that. And the other thing, too, I think. You know, Broadway survived its own its own pandemic, uh, and that was AIDS. You know, when AIDS was not touching so many other people's lives in this country, it was just 
destroying the Broadway world because so many gay men who worked on Broadway got this disease and were dying. And, you know, nobody back then in the mainstream of the culture was paying attention to these poor gay people who were dying of AIDS. But the Broadway world was. I mean, they created Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. They were creating these you know, food banks and taking care of people and looking after people who's, who couldn't work anymore, who didn't have savings, who had been in the chorus of a few shows and suddenly, at, you know, 30 years old are, are dying of this disease. They don't even know what it was. Gay cancer, they were calling it back then. But the Broadway community really, really rallied to, you know, to try to look after. They couldn't save its own members, sadly, back then because there was no cocktail drug for a long, long time but at least take care of people who had nothing to fall back on as they were dying. So Broadway is pretty resourceful, is I think pretty shrewd at comebacks. I think this one is going to take, it's going to take some time. I really don't think it can get up and running again until there's a vaccine. And even then it's going to take time. When are people going to feel comfortable, safe coming back to New York city, which was the epicenter of the pandemic only eight months ago? When will people feel comfortable sitting with other people in um, in a theater that was built in 1920 and probably doesn't have the best ventilation system in the world. One of the actors going to feel comfortable going to work. One of the musicians going to feel comfortable going to work. We simply don't, we simply don't know right now, but um, you have to have faith and you have to have hope that when a vaccine is out there and when we get this thing under control, you, you, I think people will say, you know what, I, I miss going to the theater. And if I feel safe enough, I do want to go back and I want to see something I can't get anywhere else. I mean, you can only stay in your apartment for so long binge watching Netflix and Hulu <laughs> and Amazon. I mean, you know, if that's the way the world is going to be, I don't want any part of it because yeah. then we're never going to be connected again. Yeah. So I do think theater will come back, but I don't think it's going to come back uh, anytime soon. And then when it comes back, it's going to look different from the way it's been looking. You know, I, I think the days of those premium prices, which frankly I found obscene, a thousand bucks mm-hmm. to see Hamilton. You cannot reopen Broadway and say to a bunch of people who were thrown out of work, whose lives were turned upside down because of this, hey, we're open for business. Come and pay a thousand dollars to see Hamilton. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And in order for those ticket prices to be reasonably priced to entice people to come back, the whole business is going to have to rethink its economic structure. And it's going to take the theater owners and the producers and the unions to say, you know, for the time being, guys, we maybe we all got a little too greedy there for a while and we got to put greed aside and figure out an economic model that makes sense so that our tickets are at a price point where we begin to bring people back to live theater. And part of the bringing people back to live theater obviously is having ticket prices, like you said, that are affordable for people who might not have the economic means that they did before the pandemic. The other part of it that you meant and touched on as well is getting people to be willing to come and see these shows. And one of the things that you talk about in the book, which that first question, you know, kind of really ties into the subtitle uh, of the book, the tri- you know, singular sensation, the triumph of Broadway. One of the biggest triumphs of Broadway in, in the past few decades is coming back from 9-11. And there was a concerted advertising campaign, not only to bring people back to Broadway, but to bring people back to New York. What do you think it's going to take? And I want to, this is kind of tangential to the book, obviously, but I, and I want to get to the chapters of the book itself, but what do you think it's going to take to, are they able to do something like that? I love New York campaign where they had all of the stars of Broadway. Is that going to be, enough? Are they going to need Hugh Jackman and Audra and Adina and Nathan again and Josh Groban to to kind of rally around that to bring people back? Is that something that is going to work? Or does it need to be more than than just uh, a cheerleading rah-rah, come help Broadway kind of party? 
Well, you're going to have to have a whole bunch of stuff at work. You're going to have to have uh, ticket prices that are attractive enough for people to uh, venture back to the theater. But you're, no question, you're going to have to have a new version of the I Love New York campaign. And, you know, that campaign has proved itself now oh, twice, yeah. very successfully, you know, saving, saving Broadway and, and the city uh, back in the 1970s when everybody thought, if I go to Times Square, I'm going to be you know, killed by a drug dealer. Uh, and then, of course, after 9-11, you had that great commercial uh, singing New York, New York. Reminding people of, uh, you know, that the great fun it is to come to this city, especially when Broadway is a part of it. So, yeah, I mean, my hunch will be I have a feeling when this comes back and uh, it's more than a feeling because I've been in touch with uh, with people. I think you're going to have a major star and it's probably going to be Hugh Jackman, who is going to, I would say, lead some kind of yeah. commercial, some sort of parade through Times Square as a way to tell everybody, hey, we're back in business, you know, and uh, see what you've been missing and don't you uh, don't you miss it all? So come back to see us. So yes, I think you'll see everybody do their part. I mean, I had um, on my radio show, I had um, uh, Leslie Odom Jr. on the other day, and I said, "Hey, Leslie, for the sake of argument, when Broadway is up and running again, and they say, okay, we got to open Hamilton, and we want to open it with you and Lin Manuel and some of the original cast members, would you be up for that?" And he said, "Absolutely." He said, "I would jump into that." in a minute if that's yeah. what you have to do to get the excitement going again he said i think you can count on all of us who are in that original cast to be part of hamilton again yeah and you've probably heard a lot of the same rumors i've heard i've heard that that might not be a just a, a random hunch i feel like that might actually be something that does end up coming to fruition at some point whenever theater uh comes back but um i want to get into the book specifically and what i thought was so interesting and, and so well done on your part is when razzle dazzle your first book kind of ends andrew lloyd weber is at the the height of his power he is the, the toast of broadway and yet when you open singular sensation that's the expectation is that's going to continue um with sunset boulevard but things don't exactly go according to plan and that leads to one of the greatest feuds in modern broadway history something that i know um is very near and dear uh, to your heart is the fe the feuds of broadway um what do you think account what in all of the people that you talk to what do you think accounted for the shift in Andrew Lloyd Webber's popularity in New York from Phantom and Cats into Sunset Boulevard and moving forward? Was it just a change in the sensibilities or was it uh, a change in the the content of his material? What changed for Andrew Lloyd Webber's fortunes? Well, you know, as Cameron McIntosh once said to me, he said, you know, Michael, in this business and show business, your taste is your taste. And you're lucky if there comes a moment in time when your taste happens to match that of the public's taste. And when that happens, that's when you get rich and you're successful. He said, but it doesn't last forever. You know, your taste is what it is and you just go on, but the public is fickle and the public moves away and finds something else that they're interested in. And there's no point in chasing it because you probably are not going to be successful in it. There were a number of things at work at Sunset Boulevard, which I happen to think, by the way, is one of Andrew's best shows. He has a sensational score. I love the movie, and I and I think they were very loyal to the movie. Um, but there were a few things going on. One was, um, you know, Andrew was writing essentially what is a very intimate show. It's basically, it's a triangle with a little bit of an, a fourth side. It's it's Norma Desmond, it's um, uh, the, the boy there, um, Joe Gillis, and it's Max the Butler, and it's just the three of them in this eerie house. And then you got a little bit of uh, the girlfriend who kind of comes in and a little glimpse of the young people in Hollywood. But essentially, Sunset Boulevard is a chamber piece. But Andrew's world then, 
And the world that Broadway was in was everything had to be enormous. Everything had to be huge. Everything had special effects. You had to have the chandelier. You had to have the helicopter. You had to have the barricades. Everything had to be really expensive. And so you had to have Norma Desmond's mansion fly. You know, it, it rose up and it floated out across the stage. <laughs> and I remember seeing it. I thought, okay, well, this is, this is certainly uh, spectacular. But what is the point of having a house that flies? Houses don't fly. So it just dramatically was, oh, you felt, boy, they really still are in this world where it, the audience expects demands these fantastic special effects for what is, as I say, essentially uh, a chamber show. I mean, you could do yeah. Sunset Boulevard in a black box and with Andrew's music and just the great storytelling and good acting, I think it would be even more powerful than all the bells and whistles. But you can't expect Trevor Nunn and John Napier and Andrew Lloyd Webber to have recognized that because they've had so much success and bigger is better. The more money you spend, the more extravagant it is, the more special effects, the more the audience is going to love it. The problem was with Sunset that they spent too much on it. And they didn't, I guess, realize that at the end of the day, Sunset Boulevard, as much as we love the movie and the story, it is still kind of a cult thing. You know, the, the typical Andrew Lloyd Webber patron who loved Phantom because it was lush and romantic and loved cats because they like cats and uh, it was kind of new when the special effects were great and loved Les Mis because of the sweep of the score. That audience that they built up there probably was not that familiar with Sunset Boulevard. And then if they go to see it, I think, it, you know, as Cameron McIntosh said when he was leaving the uh, opening night of uh, Sunset Boulevard, I put this in my book, he said to somebody, he said, you know, it's a beautiful score. He said, but there's not a single person on that stage that I care for. I just don't care about these people. Yeah. Joe Gillis is, is cynical. He's using Norma. Norma's completely crazed. Max is just some weird, you know, psychological, sexual thing he's got going on. Whereas the Phantom, I mean, you know, the success of the Phantom is, yeah, he's disfigured and, and he's a psychopath and a, and a serial killer. And yet at the end of the show, it's the, the women have fallen in love with the Phantom because he has such unconditional and pure love for Christine. And so that romance comes through in the Phantom. And with Sunset Boulevard, that romance wasn't there. It was something that made you feel, ooh, yuck, this just feels <laughs> uncomfortable. So kind of a mainstream audience that Andrew and Cameron, Cameron had kind of created for Broadway with Cats and Les Mis and Phantom, they would go to see Sunset Boulevard and they thought, mm, well, it's kind of creepy, kind of strange, kind of weird, really not for me. And on top of that, you then had all the scandals that were rocking the show. I mean, the show was in the news, not because... People were saying this is one of Andrew Lloyd Webber's best scores. It was Andrew Lloyd Webber's firing Patty Lapone. She's suing. Andrew Lloyd Webber's firing Faye Dunaway, and she's suing. And uh, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber is fighting with Glenn Close because when she went away for a vacation, they inflated the grosses to make it look like her her presence in the show didn't matter, and she's furious. So it was just one batch of negative publicity after another. And and I'm not a believer in all publicity is good publicity. I think after a while, kind of get a sense of something. If something's not right here, it's negative. It's always kind of gossipy and juicy and fun, but do I really want to pay a ticket to see it? And they also suffered from too, what wound up hurting the producers in the long run. I do think because Glenn was so good in the role yeah. that the show became identified with Glenn. And when she was gone and you can look at the box offices as I did, they were never at the level with Glenn Close. There was a sense you have to see Glenn Close in Sunset Boulevard. Without Glenn Close, 
eh, you may not have to see Sunset Boulevard. Same thing happened with the producers, with Matthew and Nathan in the leads and the producers. You had to see the show. When they were gone, it was like, well, you missed them, so it's not really on the top of the list to see anymore. Yeah, and and that's something that has borne itself out for, I think, the last couple of decades, that there are a lot of these star-driven shows that uh, never quite meet those same expectations once those stars leave. But you, uh, you mentioned shows that are big and expensive and have all these special effects, but then are also in the news for a lot of the wrong reasons. Some of the chapters in the book that I found most entertaining were the Garth Drabinsky chapters, uh, because I feel like a lot of theater fans know the vagaries of everything that happened with Live End and Ragtime, but to kind of see some of the stories about his obsessiveness and his refusal to listen to anyone else and uh, his need to have his hand in everything um, was really kind of eye-opening to me as somebody who I saw Ragtime on my very first ever trip to to New York City and, and fell in love with that show then to kind of see all of the weird inner workings of Drabinsky's empire uh, in the book was was really eye-opening. Was there was there anything in you know doing the reporting on that chapter that shocked even you, who I'm assuming is very difficult to shock at this point? <laughs> well, I mean, I did cover the rise and the fall of Garth Rabinsky, and I was yeah. one of the few reporters out there who's always skeptical, only because you know I'd learned how Broadway works financially from a lot of my old you know old producer friends who kind of took me under their wing and uh, explained things to me. So I was one of those people who just kept thinking, uh, I can't really. I can't really make sense of how he's pulling this off. These shows are just, they're so big. They're so Huge. expensive. And yeah. he's spending this enormous amount of money on publicity. I just, I mean, I know the finances of Broadway. I know what your, your weekly nut is and just how much money you could make each week back then. And so I was always suspicious, but <clears throat> I guess the thing that surprised me the most was how long he was able to get away with it. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, because I remember talking to people like Phil Smith at the Schuberts and Jimmy Niederlander, the, the Niederlanders there, excuse me. And um, they're like, we just, this makes no sense to us. This does not make any sense to us. And, you know, yet again, Garth would open a big show and it would kind of seem to be a hit. You know, Showboat felt like a hit, even though at the end of the day, it really wasn't. Ragtime felt like a hit, even though it wasn't a hit. But Garth was very good at... Um, Giving, uh, giving the, uh, creating the perception that everything he was doing was wildly successful. And he was able to do that because he just spent crazily on, on advertising. Because he, remember, he, the important thing to remember about Garth is he came from the film business. All right? He created right. Cineplex Odeon. And in, in the film business, advertising is everything. You know, you got to have those. You have to have those big, gigantic ads back in the day in the, in the newspapers advertising your new movie in, in every city. Every city had their big movie theaters. So it wasn't just like one ad you took out in the New York Times, let's say, for a Broadway show. If you have a movie opening across the country, you have to take out those huge ads in the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, the Washington mm -hmm. Post, the Miami Herald, the L.A. Times, all the big papers. And that's kind of how Garth approached advertising of Broadway shows in a way that the industry or your show itself could not support that kind of spending. But it did give the aura of this man seems to have unlimited resources and he's changing everything. And for a while he did. I mean, you know, you, I talked to producers and they said the thing that drove us, the, drove us crazy about Garth was he was overpaying for everybody in the show. So, you know, Rebecca Luker, lovely actress, wonderful actress, Rebecca Luker, I don't know, we put her in the secret garden back then. She was probably making $2,500 
a week, let's say, for the sake of argument. I mean, Garth was paying her something like eleven or twelve thousand dollars a week in Showboat. <laughs> nice gig if you can get it. Yeah. Yeah, he was pay- he was playing Elaine uh, paying Elaine Stritch twenty twenty five thousand dollars in Showboat. She had one song. She sang it to the baby. Why do I love you? Why do you love me? The Stephen Sondheim said, "I don't know if she's going to sing to that baby or eat it." But he was paying <laughs> Elaine tw- twenty thousand bucks, twenty thousand bucks a week to play Parthy. And the other producer's like, this is crazy, because now every time you want to hire her, Rebecca Luker, they say, well, her quote is $11,000 a week, because that's what God paid her. <laughs> it, was, it was total insanity. And how he got away for it so long, um, I think I was able to figure out when I wrote about this was because he, he and his partner, Myron, Myron Gottlieb, you know, most people have never heard of Myron Gottlieb. Gar- Garth was the showman. Garth was the public figure. Myron was the guy. He was the he was the uh, Leo Bloom of the, <laughs> the Bialystok and Bloom yeah. Corporation there that was live in. And Myron was the accountant. And Myron was the guy who, with the fake books, because we know they kept two sets of books, one showing enormous profits and everything was fabulous and great, and the other secret set of books showing the mounting losses. But Myron was the guy who could always go to the stock exchange to uh, venture capitalists and uh, investors and say, hey, look, you know, we got Kiss of the Spider Woman. We've got three companies out there. It's doing amazing. Look at these reviews from Showboat. It's huge. Ragtime just got great reviews in Toronto. It's going to be the biggest thing in New York. You know, we need some more money. And people were willing to put it in because Garth was able to create the aura of this factory that was going to turn out hit after hit after hit. But at the end of the day, um, it was all it was it was all a fraud. Yeah, all smoke and mirrors. Um, it, what I think is so great about kind of the journey that Broadway takes in both Razzle Dazzle and uh, Singular Sensation is all of these characters that pop themselves in and out of the stories, even if they're not necessarily the focus of uh, any specific chapter or anything uh, that you're covering directly, but maybe we're on the periphery of it or are commenting on it. Was there somebody who, when you were doing the interviews for this book, especially or, or both of the books together that just gave you stories that you didn't anticipate being as rich and as wonderful as they were, or told you stories that you never even heard uh, even whispers of before? Well, I would have to say that was pretty much everybody I, inter- I interviewed because I covered all these shows. <laughs> right. I covered all these stories in my column, but I was determined I was not going to write a book that was basically stringing together a bunch of my old columns, and I was not going right. to write a memoir. It was not going to be my take on things. So I thought, okay, what I, you know, if I have any talent, I'm a pretty good interviewer and reporter. And I thought, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to interview everybody involved in these shows. And, and this was the key, I think, to if the book you know, is, is fun to read in any way. The key was something that my old friend Peter Stone once told me, because Peter, he wrote Titanic and he wrote 1776. Now, 1776, you know that they signed the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) You know the outcome, right? Same with Titanic, Right, and you know the ship's going to sink. But Peter somehow managed to make, in his writing of those two shows, both are very suspenseful. I mean, you are on the edge of your seat as it comes down to July 4th. Are all the colonies going to sign up? To break away from England, you know, you're, you, you don't know until the last moment. And then in Titanic, you think, well, I kind of like these characters. And geez, is it possible that they might avoid that iceberg and maybe the ship <laughs> won't sink? And I asked Peter, I said, Peter, how do you pull off that trick? And he said, he said, look, you and I know how it turns out, but the characters don't. So you have to put yourselves in the minds of the founding fathers as they're trying to form a country, and they do not know if they're going to be able to pull it off. 
You have to put yourself in the minds of all those people who got on that ship to sail across the Atlantic Ocean. They had no idea that 1,700 of them were going to die because the ship hit an iceberg. And I thought, well, that's that's it. I've got to put my my writing, my my mind has got to be in the minds of the people who created these shows because when Fran and Barry Weisler set out to produce Chicago, they had no idea it would be as successful. They could not get a theater for it because everybody mm-hmm. thought it's a concert. Who's going to pay $75? That was the top ticket price back in those days. It's laughable now, but who is going to pay $75 to see a concert of an old show that ran a year and a half on Broadway and everyone forgot because the chorus line opened the same year? Yeah. You know? Who's going to do that? Guys and Dolls, you know, that great Guys and Dolls that Jerry Zaks did with Nathan Lane. It was like, a, they, it was touch and go throughout the whole uh, preview period. Yeah. It wasn't that funny at first. You know, they've made some mistakes along the way. So I thought, I went back and I said to everybody, don't, don't extrapolate. Don't tell me why it happened and don't go back and say, well, I knew this, I knew that. I said, just tell me what it was like. What was that first time you read the script? What was that first day at the dress rehearsal? That first time you were in front of an audience that paid for its, its tickets, the preview. So I tried to just get in the minds of my, uh, of my characters who did not know that their show was going to be a gigantic hit or a big flop. And as you know, in this business, you really have no idea which way things are going to go until the very last minute. I mean, again, Peter Stone always said to me, he said, Michael, you do not know what you have until you stand at the back of the theater and you feel how an audience that has paid for their tickets, who don't know you, who probably have barely heard of your show, but just happened to be there that night at their first preview. You don't know what you have until you see how they move with the show or if they resist it. He said, that's when you realize what, what you have to do to fix it and whether or not you've got a hit on your hands or you're going to have, you're going to have a long sloggy <laughs> preview period. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that. And, and what I think is so interesting about the way you approached the book and telling these stories is I, I feel like, and forgive me if I'm, uh, if I'm uh, saying anything that's offensive, but I feel like the Michael Riedel that people assume you are based off of your decades of columns feels like a much different Michael Riedel than wrote Razzle Dazzle and Singular Sensation. And I've seen you in interviews and, and talking on theater talk before um, about your love for theater. And it but it feels like the 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 version of you that people get a sense of from this book is a different version of you than they get necessarily from your columns. When you sat down to write these books, did you try to I mean, other than like you said, you didn't want to run, write a memoir, or just rehash your columns. But did you try to take a more sympathetic or a different look at the history of Broadway than you did writing about it in the moment for a gossip column type of thing? Well, it's two different kinds of writing. I mean, listen, sure. I was out to make a name for myself and a <laughs> columnist can be sarcastic and snarky and all those things. And, you know, if you're writing a 700 word column, it's perfectly fine to be gossipy and, and, uh, and ridicule people and poke fun at everybody uh, and take a kind of sardonic, and a sneering, I would say sometimes a sneering tone yeah. that works for 700 words. A sneering tone does not work for a three or 400 page book because it would get incredibly tedious because then you'd come off as, oh, God, this imperious narrator, Michael Riedel, this know-it-all who's <laughs> second guessing everybody in the book. And that would just be obnoxious. So it's two different kinds of writing. And I had I had I, there's nothing that I could. There's nothing that I could write that would be as compelling as the interviews and the stories uh, I got from the people I interviewed. So there, I have to let them speak in the book. 
And all I really am is I'm kind of a traffic cop. I'm just, you know, making sure that the traffic flows through the book. But I would I would not want to write a book where my snarky New York Posty tabloidy voice gets in the way because that would take you out of the moment. You know, that would take you away from yeah. what the creators and the producers of these shows were thinking, what they were doing, what their struggles were. If I then came in and gave you the kind of snarky Michael Riedel take on everything. So, yeah, I definitely put the tabloid voice aside and um, I thought I'm just going to I'm going to let all these colorful, wonderful theatrical people who, you know, they give you great quotations and they give you great stories. I'm going to just organize the material around what they've told me without the Michael Riedel um, sneering quality that you often find in my columns. <laughs> and I think that's it's perfect for, like you said, for this style of thing. But I also think it's for people who have read your column like myself for for years. I, I actually found it very, you know, heartwarming just the way that even if you're just playing traffic cop. But what I loved, especially the first time I read Razzle Dazzle was um the genuine love that it is obvious that you have for theater. And while that comes through in the column, uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, with the, the sarcasm and the sardonic, uh, approach that, um, that's not necessarily the point of those columns, but that made me feel even more of a kinship with the book and with you. So I, I just want to throw out my, um, my pleasure with uh, how you approached both of these books, but I will, I will wrap this up with um, the fact that I don't remember if it was in the prologue or, or in the forward or in the epilogue, but, uh, or maybe even one of the chapters, you said that you'd originally planned on ending this book with Hamilton. And then you realized that would be far too arduous and far too long of a book to do. So that of course brings up everything works better in trilogies. Is, is there plans for a third book to kind of bring us up to at least where we are now pre COVID or maybe e even one that eventually incorporates what happens after things get back to to normal for the theater after the pandemic? Well, I do have another uh, book deal with Simon & Schuster, so I owe them a third book. Okay, um, then yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I'm a little, I'm slightly reluctant to do it because a couple of reasons. One, to me, oh, who, uh, you know, my old friend, uh, wonderful writer and uh, director, Michael Blakemore, uh, who did City of Angels and uh, Mm -hmm. um, noises off. Uh, Michael wrote a, a, a really terrific book called Arguments with England, and that was about his to memoir, and it's about him coming from Australia as a kid to England to London and trying to make his way in the theater and all the setbacks he had. And Michael really did not make it until he was he was well into his forties when he did uh, directed a Day in the Life, Day in the Death of Joe Egg. And it's such it's such a wonderful book. I rec highly recommend it. Uh, it's called Arguments with England. Really one of the best theater books out there. And I remember asking Michael this question. So are you going to do a sequel? And he said, no, he said, because, you know, it's it's the struggle that's interesting. It's the struggle to get somewhere that's interesting. After that, then it's like, well, then I did this and then I did that. And then I bought a house in the south of France. And then they asked me to do this movie. And then I hung out <laughs> with all these fabulous people. And my feeling is a little bit that about Broadway and that. You know, what Razzle Dazzle, if it works to any extent, it's because it's the struggle to keep Broadway going in that perilous time of the 60s and 70s in New York. The 90s, again, it's let's get Broadway, let's push it into the mainstream of American popular culture with these kind of unexpected shows. And then just when it seems to be out of tight, it has the, the crisis of 9-11 and how is it going to survive that? So those are dramatic things. I think once you get past that into the 2000s, 
you kind of get into, oh, and then Jersey Boys was a hit, and then yeah. Wicked was a hit, and Hairspray was a hit, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger without the same kind of struggles that Broadway faced in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, mm. The pandemic certainly counts as a struggle, but I'm not quite sure. I haven't, I haven't figured this out yet. I don't know how dramatic ultimately it is because – I'm in touch with producers and theater owners all the time. And basically they say, well, we just have zoom chats. They have zoom meetings and every <laughs> meeting concludes the same way. Well, until there's a vaccine, we're not going to be able to do very much. So I'm not quite so sure how you spin out 400 pages on, you know, uh, a, a year and a half of zoom chats. So I, I, I don't know if the compelling dramatic story is there yet. I really don't know. I mean, and I certainly wouldn't even be able to think about writing a third book until we figure out how we get out of this. Cause I can't write that book without an ending. It's got to, it's got to, it's got to come back somehow, some way. So, so for the time being, no, I mean, Simon and Schuster may just have to wait for that third book, or I might find another topic, another subject matter and just get away from the theater for a little while. But for me, it's got, it, there's got, there's got to be the struggle, you yeah. know, without the struggle, it's just boring. You, you can write, you know, a book that says, Oh, and here's what happened with wicked. And that was great. Here's what happened with Jersey boys. And that was great. And, you know, taboo didn't work and that's too bad. But uh, Next to Normal was a big hit and Hamilton was a big hit. That to me just feels like you're stringing together a bunch of shows without a kind of larger picture that you're trying to create. Yeah. I mean, I, I would read a novel about a New York theater gossip columnist. I mean, if you're looking for an idea for a third book, like I, I'd read that if you wanted to write that. Well, I can only tell you that, um, well, my columns and books may be lively. My personal life is about as boring as a banker's, so there would not, <laughs> there would not be you can there would not be much fictionalize. You can fictionalize it. I, I, I'm sure you've got plenty of compelling other stories to, to throw in there. But uh, but Michael, like I said, I am a, a huge fan of the books, and I think that they are absolutely necessary reads for any theater fan or somebody trying to learn about the history of Broadway. So congratulations on. Uh, on the release of Singular Sensation. I know that it's going to be a just as big of a hit as Razzle Dazzle was. So uh, thank you for all the work on these and thank you for talking about it and uh, continued success and continued good health. And hopefully we'll get back to reading your columns about theater uh, sometime in the in the next year or so. Yeah, just one last thought I'll leave you with. You know, yeah. the, the, the real, the real um, challenge to write Singular Sensation was how do you how do you make these stories still compelling that so many people know about? I mean, we know the story of rent. We know that Jonathan Larson dies, but the show becomes a hit. We know Chicago's a hit. We know that Disney pulls it off with the Lion King. You know, we know that Garth Drabinsky's empire collapses. Yeah. So I thought, Oh God, you know, the, the real challenge here is to still make this compelling. And the, and the only way if I've succeeded at all to do that is to go back and interview everybody and just take you right back to what they were thinking at the time that they did not know the ending of their story. Jonathan Larson, when he finished up that interview, that last interview he did with the New York Times that night after his uh, dress rehearsal event, Jonathan Larson did not know he was going to walk to his apartment, put on his tea kettle, and drop dead. Uh, that's a, a sobering way to uh, to end it, but it's a very important lesson about uh, about these stories and, and a way to read them. So again, Michael, thank you so much and uh, congratulations, and we look forward to whatever it is that you end up writing next. Okay, thanks a lot. Appreciate the time. All right, bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tamanini. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt. And you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. We will have a link to where you can purchase Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway, in the show notes and on BroadwayRadio.com. Tell Me More is produced and edited by me. Special thanks, of course, to Michael Riedel, Alexander Premiani, and the man without whom none of Broadway Radio was possible, James Marino. Thanks again for listening, and remember, there was a time our happiness seemed never-ending. Also, always get a second scoop, and when you get the chance, ask people to tell you more.